I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, we have a guest! A guest! Oh my gosh! (laughs) We sure do. Joining us today is Taya Garbeza. Taya, she, her pronouns, is a disabled poet, editor, sometimes scholar, and paper quilling artist. Paper quilling artist? Whoa. Okay. She's a current MFA in writing candidate at the University of Saskatchewan and holds an MA in English and Creative Writing from the University of Regina. Her undergraduate honors thesis work focused on Remus Lupin, disability, and ableism in the Harry Potter series. So you can guess why we uh, have her on today. Amazing. So Taya, to help us get to know you a little bit better, could you tell us about your relationship to the Harry Potter series? Yes, absolutely. So for my own reading perspective, I'm a disabled person with scoliosis and scoliosis-related disabilities and someone who lives with chronic pain and high-functioning anxiety. So these are perspectives that I bring to reading Harry Potter since, you know, childhood. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So in addition, I'm also a poet and visual artist. So I'm very interested in space on the page and intersections of poetic form and disability, uh, which when thinking about texts like Harry Potter, I'm very interested in how this text translates into how the body is written, conceived and articulated. And then from here, how we're reading and writing neurodiverse, disabled and or critically ill characters and how reading them and writing them acts as a resistance against, you know, ableist culture, especially in literature. I love that. And I love the way that you've sort of tied both writing and reading together there, right? Like not only sort of creating the work yourself, but also revisiting these texts and reading into them as part of that sort of larger, like act of critical resistance. So was Harry Potter a like really formative childhood book for you? Yes. I was like convinced I saw flying broomsticks in the sky and I like went home (laughs) and was like, mom, like, where can I get one? (laughs) Yes, I've I've, like grew up with the series. And and when I was in university, started to really like realize some of the more critical frameworks at play and and some of the Mm. some of the issues in the text, Mm. which was a large part of my honors work is that, you know, the author is not a disabled or neurodiverse writers and that kind of comes out in how Lupin is treated throughout the series and how like embedded his internalized ableism is even though there are instances where there is like community and inclusivity but then is there really I don't know (laughs) big questions (laughs) (laughs) these are very good questions yeah these are the big questions we're here to ask I have a very serious scholarly question for you Taya I would like to know, do you identify with the Harry Potter house? And if so, what is it? 
Oh, that's such a great question. I feel like sometimes I'm like in the middle of Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff. I get Ravenclaw a lot, but then I took that quiz where it was like all of the answers and it puts you in a house and I was like a percent away from Hufflepuff when I'm like, this makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. A classic Ravenclaw. <laughs> exactly. But I will say that I also put on the hat of my dog and sorted her and got <laughs> Slytherin. <laughs> I was like, this makes sense. And then her Patronus, obviously, was a dog. And I was like, hmm. Of course. Of course. That's incredible. It's never occurred to me to try taking the sword inquisitive perspective <laughs> of my cats. But, like, all cats are Slytherin, so it's not really, there's not really much point. Yeah, I was very unsurprised that she was a Slytherin. I was like, this makes sense. <laughs> Although I guess, you know, if we think about how, like, deeply loyal Slytherins are to their people, like, maybe all dogs are Slytherins, too. Yeah, absolutely. Or mm. all good dogs. And then bad dogs are, like, <laughs> Gryffindor or something. Some dogs, some dogs are Gryffindors. Some dogs are Hufflepuffs. You know what? This is, this is a different, we have to do a whole separate episode about this. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. We've got a new teacher in class today, so before we get too far into our lesson, why don't we catch them up on what we've already covered in revision. In this segment, we look back on things we've already discussed that might be pertinent to this episode, so we should probably do a quick recap of what we discovered in our last episode on disability studies with special guest star Dr. Jess Battis. <laughs> Special guest star, I love that. So <laughs> Jess gave us an introduction to disability studies, pointing to both the origins of disability studies, like representations of neurodiversity in medieval literature, as well as the rise of disability studies as a discipline, which they linked to activist organizing in the 1990s around the rights of people with disabilities. We got a sort of big historical overview of the field. We also touched on the difference between the social and medical models of disability. So as a refresher, the medical model locates disability in individual bodies and frames it as a problem, whereas the social model of disability understands that ableism and the many barriers it creates for disabled people is far more detrimental than the quote-unquote impairment. And that is going to be, I think, pretty central to our conversation today. We then looked at some key moments in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets that our discussion on disability studies helped us to understand, including thinking about Neville and later Luna as neurodivergent characters, about squibs as a form of magical disability in the wizarding world, and about whether Harry's scar and headaches might let us read him through a disability studies lens as well. Which brings us to the question of what this book adds into our considerations of disability studies that might complicate or enrich the conversations we've already had. Now, Taya, I think you have a few things you'd like to focus on in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, including thinking about access and accommodation at Hogwarts. And obviously, we're going to have to add Lupin into this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. You know, 
we all know that an accessibility center at Hogwarts would be abysmal. Like it, it already is. <laughs> it would be so bad. But like, we don't see anything really that is helpful to these students other than, you know, one nurse. As we've already established, and I often think about like the physical castle itself with its moving staircases and like labyrinths structure (laughs) and I'm like is there are there maps on every floor like do the stairs turn into ramps if someone needed it like what it's magical why not we know we find out in this book that there are not maps because when Harry and Ron are looking for the divination classroom Mm -hmm. they can't find it because it is like completely unfindable and they have clearly not been given any sort of direction so they have to ask Sir Cadigan how to get there and that's how we we meet him as a character and then when they arrive to get into the classroom you have to climb a rope ladder like it's <laughs> an accessibility nightmare it's like nightmares from gym class like what is that? yes <laughs> oh my god yes also okay <laughs> sorry this just occurred to me everybody is standing around the base of this ladder while students one by one climb up it and we've established Mm. canonically that nobody's wearing trousers (laughs) Mm -hmm. they're all just wearing wizard ropes the indignity of it it's 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 undignified you need two hands to climb a rope ladder you can't Mm -hmm. use one of your hands to bunch up your robes to you know preserve your preserve your shame i don't know what it How do you hold your books and climb a rope ladder? Anyway, this is... Truly. So many questions. (laughs) So, so, So many questions. Speaking of so many questions, you also have introduced, I think, a really important question about Lupin, because we encounter Lupin and the sort of larger phenomenon of werewolfism in this book. And you've asked this really great question in the notes, which is, how is Wolfsbane Potion not just, like, commercially made and sold at a wizarding grocery store? Mm-hmm. Like, there's vitamin water. Why isn't there, like, Wolfsbane Potion? You know? It's like, let me just, like, buy this and, like, be chill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, it's makeable, right? Like, we know it seems to be that it's difficult, but it is Doable. I mean, is Snape the only wizard in the world who's good enough to make this potion? I mean, surely not, right? If Snape is, like, why isn't the ministry asking him, like, hey, can you provide us some of this for other werewolves? You know, like, because the thing about this text is, like, people really hate werewolves because Rowling has made it that it's, like, a literal threat to children and, and other people because you know, they can be bitten or killed. So it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. like, I understand that a literal threat, but, like, with this potion, that is, like, eliminated. So I'm like, "Mm, is it that society just doesn't want to manage and give accommodations? Mm -hmm. Because they they would rather, like, isolate and control werewolves with the fact that they won't make this easily accessible to them. Which points right back to that, sort of like medical versus social model of mm-hmm. disability, right? That like when when we think about like, okay, it's this it's this thing that's happening to his body and it can be controlled, but it's still like very clearly framed by the text as like a bad thing happening to Lupin. But 
when you sort of like zoom out a little bit and look at like the organization of wizarding society, you're like, at some point, somebody seems to have made the decision to withhold this like life changing treatment from werewolves. Yeah. Like what? Why? I I mean, we do we do have examples of this in the real world, like where we have for profit medical systems. But, you know, like, why is it that any government doesn't just supply life saving medication to the people who need it? Like the wizarding system sort of reproduces this kind of ideology that like you're sort of on your own if you have some kind of condition, which I think maybe a lot of folks don't notice because we're kind of used to that in the world Mm -hmm. that we live in, where if you don't have insurance, you don't get that medication to manage your like life-altering illness. Yeah. Yeah. Troubling. It was a real revelation to me when I found out that my Zoloft is not covered by the government. What? It's not. I No, I know neither is mine. <laughs> no. No, it's got and I have insurance cuz I work at a university, but I was like, come on Canada, come on the Canadian state, don't you have a vested interest in me not crying on the ground all day? <laughs> Doesn't that make me a more productive worker for you? I don't know. To, uh, it always makes me just so upset. You know, when the text does kind of give us like an inkling of accommodation, it's like three wizards illegally becoming anime guy. And I'm yeah. like, great. I would also probably do this for my friend. That moment is something that I think about a lot because it's like so life-changing for Lupin and like highlights the power of community and inclusivity but then later the text is just like we're gonna take that away Mm -hmm. and it's just you know you're gonna resign because you're a werewolf later on in the series you know (laughs) anti-werewolf legislation happens so I'm like okay we talked about this in our pedagogy episode when we talked specifically about Neville and the idea of needing to hack your own accommodations mm-hmm. because you're navigating an institution that has not made any effort to make accommodations available to you. I'm excited to get more into a conversation about accommodations in the next segment. But I think even the idea of like accommodations versus universal design. Yeah. Like the idea of creating an institution, a wizarding school where like lots and lots of students are not able are not able to thrive, she says, cuz they're <laughs> getting attacked by trolls in the bathroom. <laughs> like it's not it's not a good design. But like even adding accommodations in is not is not as good a model as like actually thinking from the get-go about creating an inclusive institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a bad school is what I'm saying. <laughs> Seriously. I think about it a lot that, you know, when Lupin was at school, that could have been such a good opportunity to kind of educate as a part of, like, excess. That Dumbledore could have been like, you know, he's a werewolf, but, like, this is what we're going to do to, like, educate all of you about that and also, like, Make him welcome, but no, we're gonna isolate him in a shack <laughs> that he has to get through. Oh no! Sorry, I have not. I have, <laughs> From I, under, have a, like, I have a student who needs an accommodation. 
accommodation, so I'm gonna lock him in a shack and tell the local people that it's haunted. <laughs> Such... <laughs> oh no! And it like takes an hour to get to the shack, like in that in that tunnel. So I'm like, what <sighs> is happening? Yeah. So there was just like such a an opportunity that was missed. I think there. Imagine what the world could have been mm-hmm. if Dumbledore was like, we "Won't lock you in a shack. We're gonna figure out how to deal with this right now without the Wolfsbane potion, but also like make your peers not hate you." You know, it's also a Byzantine castle. Like, there wasn't a spare room that he could have, like, a like private quarters that they could have set up for him. There's an entire chamber of secrets. <laughs> There's a room of requirement. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> oh, my gosh. That we know Dumbledore knows about. <laughs> there is so much here. I'm actually really excited to dive a little bit deeper into thinking about accommodation and access and also thinking a bit more about werewolfism Mm -hmm. in this series. So I wonder maybe, Taya, if you could teach us a little bit more about these ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Now that we've had a chance to catch up a bit, let's turn things over to today's guest instructor in Transfiguration class, the segment where we add a few more tools into our critical toolkit. All right, Taya, what are you going to teach us about? Well, I think that maybe talking a little bit about werewolves and, and what they kind of represent in literature would be helpful for our discussions on Prisoner of Azkaban. And then some interesting points about Cure and how reading these characters as disabled or chronically ill or neurodiverse can actually be acts of resistance. So a little summary on some scholars and writers who have kind of influenced my thinking about these topics. Medievalist scholar and kind of historical cultural context of werewolves, Renee Ward and Ruth Analick who is a Gothic literature scholar, focus on disability in Gothic literature and spaces, and both have touched on how these so-called monstrous bodies are used as code for the fear of the disabled body and the cultural exclusion of them based on this fear and the fear of contagion, which is interesting. Ward's work focuses on werewolves throughout history as a primary use for them is markers of difference and otherness and play an important role in fictional worlds because they call into question society's exclusionary hegemonic systems. And then Ruth Analick's research kind of connects the literary Gothic trope of hyperbolizing these monstrous bodies to disability studies and covers how the werewolf as a human other leaves no pathology that remains invisible, but rather is a visible threat. Gotcha. Okay. That's super interesting, right? It's like, because werewolfism in particular is this idea that like, it's something secret that lies within you Mm -hmm. that is maybe not visible, like 28 days out of the month. 
but at some point it like becomes released and becomes this like visible pathology and this like visible present and undeniable threat yeah it's like it takes what's inside and like puts it out Mm -hmm. which is interesting when we think about fearing that contagion where an ableist kind of perspective of like doesn't matter what sort of illness or disability it is it's like who can I catch that it's like I have scoliosis and someone asked me like can I get scoliosis from you I'm like no (laughs) like oh my god um, it's like a bone structure of my vertebrae like no you can't yeah that's that's so powerful because that image of the werewolf as like exactly the phrase you used here like the human other like they are human and they like quote unquote sort of look like everybody else until they don't so actually Taya we should invite you back when we meet Fenrir Greyback in the later books oh yes (laughs) because he's a perfect example of the other who has no invisible pathology because he becomes like a walking Mm -hmm. both a walking literal and metaphorical threat to society and is worse because he's not trying to fight it Mm -hmm. right so like Lupin is sort of the good werewolf because he hates his werewolfism we'll get more into that (laughs) lots of thoughts on both of them and how the author kind of it juxtaposes them in a in a weird way where yeah it's like Lupin is this like good werewolf because he doesn't want to you know display his illness or disability to everyone whereas Fenrir is like evil for doing so but interestingly they both want to be included in their communities but they're not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Analik also kind of touches on this really interesting social connection between the werewolf figure that that is an ableist kind of perspective because a sense of shared humanity disappears in this face of so-called deviation Mm. from the norm Mm. yeah so that's what you know we've got that powerful image of like lupin getting locked away in a shack Mm -hmm. like (laughs) yeah even though you are sort of a seemingly human figure you sort of lose this connection to the rest of humanity yeah and I know our focus today is Prisoner of Azkaban, but like later on, Lupin does say to Harry, like, I'm a very unpopular dinner guest, Mm -hmm. even in those like intimate spaces where even with people like Molly and Arthur Weasley, they still make those like comments about that werewolf at St. Mungo's. And they're like, shouldn't he be in like a private room? Mm -hmm. So the werewolf figure is a very interesting one in literature and how it kind of connects to ableism and how it kind of manifests and how also if we think about the werewolf when they turn as bringing out the inside out but also like once it becomes human again I keep thinking how now it's like dealing with all that ableism which is something that I focused on with Lupin too is that his internalized ableism from his like childhood to his adulthood is quite ingrained in him and in, in like everything that he thinks about and does mm-hmm. <sighs> so now that we've gotten that <laughs> out of our bodies <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I want to touch on some of Eli Clare's ideas of cure in their book Brilliant Imperfection Grappling with Cure which is a scholar that Jess Battis had named as well in the segment that they did 
And I really love this text because it touches on a lot of complicated ideas of cure and how there's this obsession in society about curing these disabled bodies and minds in order to like fit within this desired able-bodied norm and how a lot of these ableist conceptions of cure, especially for people like Claire and myself, like our disabilities are, you know, rooted at birth, how like versions of the self that isn't disabled, like doesn't exist. And I think that idea stems to even folks who become ill or disabled later in life as well. It's like, well, this is a part of me now. And so when society's like, but wouldn't you want to be this other thing or be a self without that? It's like, well, I don't know because... Because it's part of me. It is, it's who I am. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that we can see some of that in, in Harry Potter as well is that with Lupin, there's no way for him not to be a werewolf. There's a way to make him maybe not be murderous, I guess. But it's like this self like doesn't exist. So Claire yeah. highlights how like the cliche of like cure and like overcoming disability kind of poses it as like an individual problem rather than like a societal problem. Yeah. I keep thinking about Mia Mingus and Leah Lakshmi Peeps and the Samaracena's work about like disabled futures mm-hmm. and the way that in so many sort of utopian imaginings they imagine disability out of existence, right? It's like in this perfect future, there will be no disability. And the way that writers like that have really pushed back against that imagining and really said like, no, in a utopian future is like full of people with disabilities living utopian lives. Yeah, This is the thing that always blows my mind about, about disability studies as a field is how totally paradigm shifting it is for literally every human with a body and a mind Mm -hmm. I mean for me personally it has completely shifted my relationship to my body and my mind and the relationship between my body and my mind me too (laughs) it's like we're so ingrained in these ideas of like fixing or curing that once I discovered disability studies and like realized that I was a disabled person that kind of like opened up to so much care like for myself that I've never had before in terms of just even like self care like listening to my body like okay don't overwork yourself because you're going to spend like a whole week trying to recover from that and you know I like that Claire is kind of highlighting that the key to success is not a cure but rather like a broad-based disability access and accommodation and I think that idea of disabled futures is so wonderful in that way because yeah like why would we not want to see all of these amazing possibilities and richness of these bodies and minds and what that adds to what we know about the world yeah I love that I love that and that that brings us back to that that question of of access Mm -hmm. right which is so central to any conversation that we want to have about an institution like Hogwarts. So can you tell us maybe a little bit more about what access means in this context and how like access is different from cure? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great question. Access 
the easiest way to understand it is just the elimination of barriers that people might face, specifically like, for example, eliminating stairs to a building and putting in a ramp. That will benefit everyone, including disabled people who can't use stairs. So it's the idea of eliminating barriers that don't allow people to participate in certain things or that, you know, might look like, for example, if we think about Neville in Potions class, access for him might look like, you know, giving him more direction or like simpler directions or reframing how to do this potion. Whereas Cure just wants to eradicate disability and neurodiversity and any kind of illness. So it's like, instead of eradicating somebody, you know, literally, we're eradicating barriers that don't allow them to participate in certain areas of life or certain activities. So adding Neville into the conversation sort of expands our thinking here about about access and accommodation and cure into, I think, talking about about neurodiversity as well, right? Absolutely. So something about Neville that I really like is this other scholar, Joy Michael Ellison, who is a scholar in women's and gender and sexualities and is also a creative writer, wrote an essay in this book of scholarship on popular culture called Time Lords and Tribbles, Winchesters and Muggles, based on a conference at DePaul University in Chicago. The essay is called Remembrals and Recognition, a Resistant Reading of Neville Longbottom as Disabled. And what they do in this essay is they use Neville Longbottom as an example to show that reading characters as neurodiverse or disabled or chronically ill kind of opens a space for representation and resistance against Mm -hmm. ableism. And what I loved and appreciated most about Ellison's essay is that they highlight the ways in which giving a representation of one person with a learning disability was their reading of Neville because they themselves have a learning disability. So they saw themselves in Neville in that way is that once we have one person with a learning disability in popular culture, it incites room for more representation of disability in popular culture. And then this representation is essential, I think, to moving forward with more positive and accurate representations of disability and neurodiversity or chronic illness in popular media that then maybe pushes these institutions to give us this broad-based access. And I know we're quite far from from that utopia, but I think pushing back against, you know, representations of disabled characters in that kind of ableist or stereotypical way is paving a way forward. I really like the way that thinking harkens back to what you were saying three segments ago when we were first (laughs) meeting you about the connection between reading and writing and the transformative work that can do, how it starts with this, I'm going to offer this reading of Neville that might not be canonical, but I see myself in him. And so I'm going to interpret him in this way. And then sort of as people build up some like shared consensus or fan theories around that reading that then opens the space to write more neurodiverse characters, you know, maybe coming out of fan fiction, which is often where radical shifts in how we write characters begin. That then feeds into mainstream publishing. That then feeds into mainstream popular culture. And then that feeds into 
sort of shifts or transformations in our larger cultural dialogues. I think it's a really interesting to think about how those things can sort of link together mm -hmm. and how they can often begin with individuals or communities sort of claiming characters. Absolutely. Like it's such a powerful kind of domino effect, hopefully. And and we can kind of get rid of those stereotypical ways of, of constructing characters, especially if you're writing not from that position too like we're all you know if you're trying to write a character that you don't have that experience it's going to take a lot more to make it authentic and accurate and not a stereotype which is something as writer I'm always thinking about is how do I make my characters not stereotypes and not you know surface level <laughs> mm -hmm. we've talked in previous episodes about the way that like rolling seems incapable of writing characters with disabilities in a thoughtful or inclusive way. And yet readers have found themselves in these characters who were not necessarily constructed to be neurodivergent or characters with learning disabilities. I think, you know, when we talked with, with Jess, they talked extensively about how Luna is a perfect example of a neurodivergent character, but there doesn't seem to be any indication that like JK Rowling intended to create her that way. So I guess ultimately what I'm wondering is how much of this is resistant reading on the part of the fandom or reading communities and how much of it is, you know, authorial attention to considerate representation or to broad and diverse representation. That's such a great question. And I was thinking about that conversation with Jess. And I think that sometimes in Harry Potter, there are those like happy accidents on the author's part where I think she thinks that quirkiness, you know, is like a fun character trait. Whereas like those things are, are actually a part of some lived experience. And I think in these texts, in particular, it is a lot of the reader doing that resistant work. Whereas when we get texts where the author is paying attention to writing a character who is neurodivergent or disabled or chronically ill, there are other very clear kind of markers of that. And also they don't consistently only focus on that, if that makes sense. Like, it's a part of their lived experience, but the plot or everything around them doesn't always point to that. Like with Luna, sometimes I think about how every time she's brought up, it's always that she's like loony love good, you know? So she's all her character is to the other characters is that she's so-called loony, which is an interesting connection to Lupin as loony. So readers are doing this really important work when the author isn't or is playing to stereotypes. <laughs> but when both are happening, I think there is a lot more nuance and um, kind of highlights the richness of that experience, but also gives us like other aspects of that character's life rather than only focusing on that one kind of identity. Yeah, like when we think about the characters who are squibs, that's their defining characteristic, right? That's all we know about them. Yeah. And I think that with some of these characters and, and thinking about their identity as a squib, that is a, a major part of it. But the way that the author kind of uses that as just like this, like 
othering marker is just like what's troubling, you know, because it's just like, well, why can't I get some scenes of like Filch's joy in like getting a little spell or something from his like course that he's taking? There seems to be a lot of emphasis on othering and sorrow and and no joy in these experiences. And I'm like, so I understand being sad all the time, but like, (laughs) you know, I want to see Lupin, you know, have this like awesome experience in the forest and be like, you guys, like, this is what I experienced as like a werewolf. This is kind of cool. That question, Marcel, really makes me think about the relationship between fan reactions to characters and authorial paratexts. So paratext is like, you know, sort of the larger collection of texts that like circulate around the main text. So, you know, there's what we get in the actual books. There's the characters of Lupin and Neville and Luna and what we as readers can make of them. And then there's what the author has said is canonical in other texts. For example, her absolutely abysmal statement about the absence of illness and disability in the wizarding world, which then I think makes us as readers trust her less. And that doesn't mean that we we lose the characters, but it means that we lose any faith that that creation of interesting characters came out of any sense of like awareness or understanding of disability versus other creators who we see like not only create interesting characters, but then in their paratexts will say things like, this character is drawing on my personal experiences of the following, or I don't have these personal experiences, but in order to create this character, I consulted with these people and learned in this way and, you know, had conversations with this community. And that there is this, I think, particularly, you know, in the 21st century as as readers and fans, this complex relationship between what we are doing with the texts and how those creators talk in the public sphere about mm-hmm. identity and power and politics and bodies. Maybe one of the greatest gifts that Rowling has given us is the ability not to trust a single thing that she says about her books. <laughs> Because she's so bad at reading her own books. A simple reread would have helped. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, she's very rich. She could hire somebody else to reread them and make some notes for her. That's true. (laughs) Before we dive fully back into The Prisoner of Azkaban. Are there any other sort of really key theoretical points you would like to draw out for us that you think will be will be helpful as we dive back into the text? Yes. I think that when we look at the text, it would be really helpful to kind of think about how these werewolf figures and narratives are used to reflect values of society and making readers question those norms and how maybe the text does that, but also doesn't at the same time. And then thinking about how in Rowling's world, how the werewolf kind of, that is hinged on bodily difference and bodily uncontrollability, which is something I think that really comes up in the Harry Potter universe, because even when we're thinking about the anime guy, they aren't as feared because there's that bodily control 
and how werewolves also pose that threat of so-called contagion and how these established norms that value self-control and bodily control, how that's kind of pervasive throughout the series and, and this book in itself and how thinking about Lupin as a so-called monster poses that really real threat of killing someone and thinking about how, well, in the wizarding world, wizards also kill each other. <laughs> so why is it that Lupin's threat of killing someone is more feared than that? And how like society's inability to accommodate werewolves is another aspect of that eugenic idea of like eliminating and isolating these conditions in, in a notion of controlling it as a society. Eugenics was a very popular and at the time socially progressive way of thinking about how to build a strong and healthy society. It was a very white supremacist notion because it tended to come from white settlers in North America. It came from social purity and social reform activists in Britain. This idea that through selective breeding and breeding out things like disability or undesirable character traits like work ethic or race, that we could then create a strong Anglo-Saxon nation. It is an extremely gross history. The discourse has fallen out of favor, but the practices that the discourse produced are still really widespread, like involuntary sterilization is still a practice. But I think there is that eugenicist logic in the way that like Lupin's ultimate redemption is production of a healthy non-werewolf human child and then subsequent death. Like that is a kind of redemption arc that's like, you know, you ultimately proved that you were human by having a human child and then your monstrosity is eliminated from the text, which is a deeply unjust conclusion for this beautiful character who really could have been imagined in different ways. Mm-hmm. I want that spin-off of Lupin and Tonks raising their, their amazing child. <laughs> I know, you know right? Like, and yeah, like I think the text in that way kind of perpetuates that idea that, you know, death is better than like living that life. It also kind of pinpoints how wizarding society and to the extent the text itself in some ways is like valuing bodily control in terms of like when we look at anime guy and metaphor guy which is what tonks has but even still the ministry holds register for that so they they're still controlling them so i'm like Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> i love how much of reading Harry Potter comes down to so I'm like oh <laughs> it's a really good summary of the whole experience <laughs> oh <laughs> all right I think with this extremely helpful critical framework of questions and sounds of displeasure maybe maybe it's time to dive fully back into the prisoner of Azkaban Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fortunately for us and you, today's supply teacher is no Snape, which means no outrageous homework assignments. But we are going to put what we've learned into practice in owls. So this is a segment where we move into closely reading, closely examining some specific moments in the text. So in this case, we're going to look at some places in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban where the ideas about access and neurodiversity and werewolfism and disability really sort of help us understand what's going on a little bit better. So Taya, I think you had some particular scenes that you uh, you wanted to direct our attention towards. Yes, I think it would be kind of awesome to start at the end and touch on the scene where where we kind of get a lot of explanation from Lupin at the start of that chapter of the Marauders and how, you know, he says moments like they were unregistered and it took them a few years to to do it. But when they did, it was, you know, the best. He was the happiest he's ever been in his life. And how this friendship opened up this opportunity of transforming that then it wasn't shameful. It was fun. It was, you know, they got up to mischief. And like, when I was reading it, there was a sense of community and labeling something as the best times of of my life, as Lupin says to Harry. This kind of shows how thinking about access and accommodation, how with within this community of people, but then how, how this might come out into a larger idea of had he, he been, you know, given this earlier, how much better maybe things would have been for him. Yeah. I love that reading of his friends turning into animagi. Animagi? I don't know how... I've never known how to say a word in my life, but how I love thinking about that as a model of accommodation and how we see it's like his friends responding to a need that he has by creating this new sort of infrastructure, basically, in which it is possible for him to like initially just be less in danger, but then ultimately sort of as they learn how to like use these new tools and systems they've created they become joyful and celebratory and open these opportunities for like a version of life that Lupin didn't think that he would get to have and there's like a few ways in which that's stripped away part of it is that they leave Hogwarts which is often figured as this space where particularly under Dumbledore the space where like people who don't fit into the rest of the wizarding world can maybe find a space for themselves that's not as possible sort of once they leave but also like 
you know, the friends who were that system for him, that community is destroyed in the war. And so he also just, he loses those people, right? James is killed. Sirius is imprisoned. Peter disappears. And Lupin is left alone without the community that, that, you know, made his werewolfism something he could find joy in. I just really bummed myself out saying that. So, uh, but also there is the sense that like that access is the exception to the rule rather than imagining how like having proven that there is a system through which access becomes possible for somebody who is a werewolf we can expand on that and in fact like oh look we've solved this problem so like we can have other werewolf students at hogwarts and it's not expanded outwards it's like here's the special moment in time and lupin got to have fun for like a couple of years but never again no more fun for lupin ever you make me think about how like harry at the end where where lupin has to resign because snape has let it be known that lupin's a werewolf and Harry goes, but you're the best teacher. And it and it seems that, that in that moment, it's almost as if, like, Harry's kind of maybe opening up another door for that to happen. But then the text kind of shuts it out anyway. And, and I think that might have to do with maybe some of the internalized ableism. Having ingrained that for so long, it, like, doesn't let him open that door. And it's disappointing. I had to do a quick flip through the book because there's this scene that I remember so clearly from the movie and I just, it's not in the book. I had to double check to make sure it's not in the book, but it's when Lupin begins to transform and Sirius goes to him in the movie and puts his hands on his shoulders and says, Remus, my friend, and he's like trying to bring him back. To me, that moment really suggests to us that there was a time when they could reach him when he was transforming, right? That this idea of community was so powerful that it allowed him to remain himself, even when his body transformed. And that the absence of that community for the last, you know, 15 or whatever years has meant that Lupin has lost that ability to connect with the people who love and care about him and so he's no longer reachable right it's like an ability or a skill that they had sort of fostered when they were hanging out in the shack together and now and now it's gone and I like the implication of that you know that it's not just a matter of having the right complicated potion there's also something about maintaining connection and community instead of isolation that allows people to remain themselves even when their bodies are acting in ways that seem unruly or out of control or unexpected. Mm, that just makes me think about like conversations about the importance of community intervention and like communities becoming more skillful at like working with people who have, for example, like forms of mental illness that, you know, will often get addressed by non-voluntary institutionalization or police wellness checks, which are an absolute horror show and are connected to the sort of disproportionate criminalization and also police violence against disabled people and people with mental illness but that 
there's sort of these models within communities of like, okay, we are going to learn how to like understand what you're going through, how to respond when you are in crisis. You know, your community is going to become skillful in helping you so that we don't resort to institutionalization, that we don't bring the police into your home or your life. And that that's so much of sort of the conversation about like dismantling the carceral system and and defunding the police is tied to building community skills where we don't outsource our relationships, but we actually say like, all right, all right, my friend who is a werewolf, we're not locking you up. We're going to figure out how to help you when you are in crisis, because there are moments of crisis in werewolfism. Sometimes it's bad. And I think that's a reality. I love that idea of them having built up the skill set, even if what we see is the time after they've lost it. Just to expand kind of what you both are talking about, that time with his community is kind of giving him a lesson in how he needs to navigate his own disability, if we're reading it in that way, and how important it is to like, know, like what a possibility for you is. And it's like, I think access kind of gives you that it's that it kind of shows you what's possible for you. Whereas like those barriers kind of like make you think there's only one way to do things. And that's to, you know, present as able-bodied or able-minded or whatever ableist conception of healthy is, you know, I guess I just want to say that this conversation about community really ties well with what Ellison was talking about in terms of like reading these characters. And also, as I said, writing them, it pushes for more positive representation and like maybe some more stories of these characters in joyful moments. And hopefully this will like go on to, attempt to change these ableist and harmful institutions and structures that we live in. So yeah, thanks for the conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, witches, for joining us for episode 17 of Witch, Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryProductions.com or OhWitchPlease.ca or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry Productions and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to our beloved producer. Greetings. And to Not Sorry Productions for having us. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts? At the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me stumble through your usernames. <clears throat> this week, special thanks to Maria Mulder. Pick Pack Pock, Coffee Climbing and Cats, Amber Nelson is, and Sylve L. Vinu. Sylvie. Sylvie. Hi, Sylvie. We know know who you are, Sylvie.
If you want to hear even more from us, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash ohwitchplease to check out the many exciting forms of bonus content available to you. On our next episode, we're continuing our discussion of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with a whole new focus. But until then... Later, witches.